please welcome our guest moderator, chair and co-founder of the Resolution Project, Oliver Libby. Good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for coming to join us here at uh, Back to School. Uh, I'm Oliver Libby from the Resolution Project, and I'm delighted to see you all here tonight to talk about a really important topic. It's a changing world out there for a workforce that is dealing with new technology, dealing with new world challenges, and many of the folks who are graduating from school today, whether it be grad school or undergrad, are facing these challenges in a very fast-moving environment that takes a lot of knowledge. And I'm very pleased to be able to present to you a panel tonight of people who have a lot of knowledge on this important topic. They're here tonight to share with you not only their thoughts on where the workforce is going and how to think about careers, but share with you a little bit about their own non-traditional pathways to having great impact in the world in what they do. At the Resolution Project, we're particularly interested in this because we work with undergraduate students around the world to create their own social ventures, thereby employing themselves and also helping to change the world. So it's with that context in mind that I'm very happy to welcome our panelists up on the stage tonight. So first here we have Alex Amaliel, who's the Director of Program at the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, where she brings together phenomenal folks uh, every year, and in fact throughout the year, to speak at Clinton Foundation events. We have Sherman Luo here from uh, two wonderful organizations, the Global Youth Mentorship Initiative, which is her resolution-funded and supported social venture, and also the I Promoter Image, which is her uh, fashion venture um, that she has just launched. Noah Gaffney, uh, who uh, is not only an incredible social entrepreneur in her own right, um, but also was the director of communications for the, um, the Global Shapers at the World Economic Forum. And then finally, Ben Castleman here, the uh, chief uh, economist uh, for the 538 blog. What, did I get that right, Ben? Chief, yes, chief economics writer. So thanks very much for joining us, everyone. So, I want to start uh, the conversation off tonight with a question that looks back a little bit, and for some of you back farther than others, um, but I, I want to start with um, your recollection of what the workforce and graduating from school trying to get into the workforce looked like when you were in school and your perception as people who often talk to students now uh, about what it's like today. So, you know, yesteryear to now, what are the differences in the workforce and uh, how has that changed? Uh, Alex, can we start with you? Uh, so hi everyone. First of all, I think you can tell from my accent that I'm not from the US originally. Uh, I, w I studied, uh, my undergraduate was in Cambridge in the UK and then I did a master's in Paris and London. Um, and I graduated uh, from my undergrad around 2003, so quite a while back. The world was quite different. There wasn't a financial crisis uh, at that point. And, um, but I think that the workforce certainly from you know a very... Um, sort of university perspective and Cambridge being one of the best universities was felt fairly restricted uh, to me. A lot of my friends went into investment banking and consulting into law. That was sort of default paths for sort of for students. Uh, some people went into the civil service, but not that many. Um, and certainly I wanted to have a career in NGOs and social impact. That's why I'd spent sort of some of my student years doing and there wasn't necessarily that many opportunities to break into that field. A lot of the job descriptions said two years work experience sort of thing. And how do you ever get that two years work experience if you can't afford to be an unpaid intern for, for those two years essentially? Um, so I actually started out in consulting as a result of that. Um, and then after two and a half years in consulting, I did join uh, Save the Children, an NGO. And so I did have to go and get that two years experience to be able to then switch into an NGO, but I think it worked out. Um, I hope today, I mean, the financial crisis has redefined a little bit those sectors and hopefully maybe the banking consulting law is not as prominent or as sexy as it was back in my day. Um, and hopefully people are seeing other paths as well emerge, be it sort of traditional industry, new technology, social impact, becoming an entrepreneur yourself. I hope that that's coming down to um, into universities and and sort of into other things. But I'm, I'd love to hear what other people have thought and maybe some of the younger people as well. <laughs> 
Wonderful. Well, actually, let me move to Noah. Sherman, we'll get to you at the end of this question. Noah, especially as someone who's been through large organizations like Hearst and the World Economic Forum, and then now the CEO of Impact Squared, your own venture, um, you know, how do you feel about this question? And particularly, if you can focus on people starting new things coming out of school. Sure. So that's a great question, Oliver, because as you know, I started as an entrepreneur right out of school, which back in 2005 was not a very fashionable thing to do. All of my friends were going into banking jobs. Uh, and I was one of the few. So it was difficult to explain to the people around me why I was choosing a, a very different route. Um, and even though my venture never became the next Facebook, it was an amazing learning opportunity. And what I learned about social media, running my own business, and community management led me to an amazing job as head of social media at Hearst when they launched their digital team. And so even though I took an untraditional route, it really led me to be able to take a huge jump forward just a year later. I think that's great. And uh, Ben, I happen to know a little bit um, and a very little bit about what it's like to start as a journalist. And one of the things I've always been impressed about is that you have to go somewhere and prove yourself first. Is that something that holds true today or are you seeing people directly jump into more visibility? Yeah, I mean, so I think this is a, a really interesting question for me because um, you talk about changes in the workforce. Journalism has probably changed more fundamentally than just about anything out there. When I came out of school, I graduated in, in 2003 from undergraduate um, and went into newspapers. And at the time, the sort of path was that you went and worked for a small newspaper and you worked your way up to a mid-sized newspaper and you worked your way up to a large newspaper. Uh, and I, I was very lucky. I started a small newspaper and was able to through a, uh, some luck, move straight to the Wall Street Journal. If I had not done that, I would probably still be at the smaller middle stage because basically newspapers all went into the tank. Nobody reads newspapers anymore. Uh, and there are still jobs that are out there, but those jobs, there, there's no movement up, up the ladder. Um, and so what you now have is you have a lot of people who are jumping in, uh, trying to sort of make a name for themselves. And I, I think that that presents a lot of opportunities. I, I think that there's a chance to go out there and become known on some level uh, very quickly, faster than you would have in the, under the old model. The downside is, is that I got to make a tremendous number of mistakes at a place where nobody would ever know about them. Uh, if you want to find the mistakes that I made, I invite you to go to the Salem Library in Salem, Massachusetts and find it on microfilm. <laughs> it is literally the only place that you can find it. Uh, and you will discover all of the terrible things that I wrote. Um, but that's the only way that you can get it. And now all of your mistakes are out there on the internet. And now also the temptation, I think, is very strong to become a brand before you have actually done anything to, uh, to make it worth being a brand or to make anybody worth paying attention to you. And so I think that that is a tension as we talk more about this sort of applying to other industries. There's a tension now between the need to sort of go out there and, uh, and achieve something sort of noticeable and uh, get attention very early on and the importance of actually going and, and learning something, becoming an expert in something, developing uh, some real skills and expertise, maybe a little bit below the radar, but so that then when you get your big opportunity, you actually have something to show for it. Great point. Uh, Sherman, I, I purposefully end with you on this line of questioning because you're still in school, but the, the two questions I have for you within this are, have you noticed changes from when you started uh, just a, a mere three years ago? Um, and, and also, as someone who's going to, I think, become a full-time entrepreneur right when you leave, do you sense uh, that that is giving you extra credibility in your class, or is it something people are looking down on? What's the dynamic with that choice? Okay, um, so the first question, I think being an Ivy Leaguer and attending a prestige school definitely requires you to know exactly where you want before even getting to college. And um, so right when I was a freshman, it, the two biggest job categories for college graduates, or at least for Columbia, are um, consulting finance and um, CS technology. And um, right now, this year, it's still CS and finance, but I see a very interesting change in um, small categories. There's an increase in PR, in um, social impact, in NGOs, in marketing. So I think that's one major change. And for, um, the core Columbia organization of rising entrepreneurs um, is growing humongously at Columbia right now. So I think there are a lot of um, more, a lot more people who are interested in being entrepreneurs at Columbia now. And I think it definitely gave me more credit. 
So thinking about careers and blending uh, the original reason to have a career, which is to make enough money to survive, and uh, a lot of the imperatives we see now about having a social impact uh, in that work. I, I know all four of you have great social impact. Um, I I'd love to ask you how you feel, A, that this has changed uh, since you were in school, um, and, and B, how you think these blends between making a living and making an impact uh, are, are working out for you and for your peers. Um, Noah, could I start with you on that one? Sure. Uh, this is a question that I focus on a lot in my work because much of my work focuses on the millennial generation. And I think we as a generation really care about making an impact through our work and also integrating all aspects of our lives. And so what I see very often, um, both in the U.S. and abroad, is really this idea that um, our work makes a difference and who we are is not separate from where we work. And so the decisions that we make in our careers are very much aligned with our personal decisions. And, and actually, just to drill down on that for one moment, um, and maybe to, to push back against the zeitgeist a little bit, um, everyone wants to have a social impact, it seems, but then they get an investment banking job and everyone is thrilled for them. Do you see in the work that you're doing educating people and maybe even at the Global Shapers uh, that the folks who end up with the banking job are looking simultaneously for impact or are they saving that for later? What's the dynamic there? It's a great question. I see a mix of both. Some people I know enter investment banking, they do it for two years, they leave, or others I know start an NGO when they're there and, and when they have a bit of bandwidth to breathe after the first two years when they're uh, working in the office nonstop. Uh, I also see a lot of the consulting firms, which is another big uh, feeder of top schools, I would say, of, of young graduates, they're really focusing on social impact projects and at least giving people a pro bono project as one of their yearly opportunities in order to keep them engaged in their work. So it's not necessarily just the kind of people who are very socially minded, but also corporations are finding ways to integrate this into their work as well. Totally. And, and Ben, you mentioned that the journalism industry is struggling to find its legs and, and the financial wherewithal to continue in, in certain ways. Um, is that counterbalancing against the obvious social impact of quality news? Uh, how is that playing out in your career and in those around you? Yeah, I mean, so I think that it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, journalism, I think, is in a difficult place right now. You have a lot of really tremendously... Uh, interesting journalism that's happening at, uh, at sort of a national and international level, you have a lot less of what used to happen at the local level. So you probably have more people who are really paying attention than ever to what's happening in Washington. You have some great investigative journalism that's coming out. You don't have as many people watching the school committee, watching the city council. Um, I do want to pick up on one thing that Alex said at the beginning, I think, which is, so I, I graduated around the same time, and at the time everybody uh, from sort of at least top tier universities seemed to be going into finance. Um, going into uh, going into you know a very narrow set of fields. I have nothing against finance, but I think we were probably sending a too large a percentage of our of our best and brightest into that. You then had the financial crisis, and that kind of wiped out any opportunities for anybody. And and I think you know people who graduated in 2009 and 2010 uh, are still suffering the scars of that, and, and probably will be suffering the scars of that for the entirety of their careers. But people who are coming out now. I, I, I'm optimistic because I think that there's an opportunity now to get jobs, the unemployment rate's a lot lower, the opportunities are better out there, but I don't think there's quite that same suck towards finance. And so I think that there is now a chance, you're not weighing necessarily this sort of tremendous opportunity at a hedge fund versus you know going and, and struggling to, uh, to start something. I, I think that that's a little bit more balanced now and so maybe we are seeing a little bit more balance in the choices that people make. Um, Sherman, you, you have a social enterprise and uh, also a fashion enterprise. Um, how are you going to be balancing those two things? Do you uh, want to? Do you feel like you want to talk more about one or the other at various parts of your uh, of your life now? What, how is that playing out for you to be both a social entrepreneur and a fashion entrepreneur? Um, they actually complement each other very well um, in a way that uh, I actually met a lot of fashion and technology people through Jimmy and. Um, my um, fashion tech and um, startup, iPromoter, actually has an educational social impact element in its mission, which is to teach underserved people how to dress for success. So um, 
education and fashion tech are two of the most important things to me that I care deeply about. So I think that works out well for me. And I think nowadays than ever, we have a lot more options to balance money making and um, producing social impacts. I know. Um, I know people who are all in for cash, but I also, many of my friends, many of the people I work with, um, volunteers for Jimmy, advisors for Jimmy, who are deeply care about producing social changes. And they're some of the most successful people I know in their own industries, like Oliver right here. And my co-founder for Jimmy, Christine, she's um, currently a first year at Harvard Math School. And um, my friends who graduated, graduated from Columbia and Stanford in CS. They are anxious about promoting social changes as well. Um, and um, they accomplish it by working for some tech technology company that has some kind of social impact in its missions. We're gonna come back to that last one in just a second. But <laughs> Alex, um, round this one out for us. You have a, a terrific uh, career yourself in several kinds of social impact, but also with your role as director of program at CGI, you have a bird's eye view on really the whole sector, particularly at an organization that prides itself between public and private partnerships. So for you, how was that decision between impact and financial stability played out? And, and how do you see that as a sector if you step back to 50,000 feet? Um, maybe I'll sort of disagree a little bit with, with people here. I think there's still, you know... Um, Finally, um, we have... Yes, a, yes okay. Yes, a debate. Um, you know, definitely in the world where I operate and a lot of my friends care about um, having an impact and sort of living decently in New York, which requires a certain amount of money and, and, uh, and a lot of my friends operate between the public and the private sector, either in sort of two wearing two hats, one by day and one by night. Um, but I, I do see still within a circle, you know, a broader circle of friends, a whole lot of people who um, have very traditional paths and not maybe write a check every now and then, but don't, you know, a still primary motivator is going to be being successful in a very traditional corporate career and having enough money to live nicely and bring up a family. And, you know, they, they still have very different interests. And then I also think... On the flip side, you have still, you know, building off what you said a little bit, um, you still have people, certainly what I see, I recruit, you know, people on my team. I see a lot of people, um, probably the aftermath of the financial crisis who graduated around 2008, 2009 have been essentially, have now should have seven years of work experience essentially and or five years of work experience and a graduate degree, and yet um, have a lot of internships and a lot of contractor positions, et cetera, amounting to essentially not many, not any years of experience. Um, they went to do a master's, you know, to, you, you look at their CV and you're worried because you can't really employ these people because they've never held a job for more than six months to nine months. And a lot of that hasn't been paid. And I, and um, that's to me, and that's perhaps worse in the social impact field. Uh, I don't know. I imagine that might be the case in other fields as well. Um, and that worries me in terms of uh, how these people sort of really kickstart their career because now they're quite old, basically. Absolutely. So, so picking up as promised on what Sherman said about technology, you know, we're here at the Apple Store, a shrine to awesome technology, um, and uh, and I think when I see some of what's going on and how technology is affecting the workforce, I'm simultaneously, you know, amazed and a little concerned. Um, and, uh, you know, not to, to throw a pointed question at you, Ben, but I read the other day that in sports writing, um, a certain percentage of the articles are now being generated by algorithms. Um, how can we see the training that people are getting in school now playing out in a workforce that technology is changing in very short time increments? So, I mean, I think what we're seeing now is that the same forces that have affected much of the economy for a long time are now hitting people like those of us on stage, right? They're, they're now hitting college-educated people. They're now hitting white-collar jobs. Uh, yeah, there are algorithms now that write sports stories, that write basic earnings stories. Um, what that requires is an ability to do the things that, uh, that computers can't do. 
Uh, and that doesn't just mean sort of staying one step ahead on the sort of processing curve and, and coding a little bit better than the computer can do on its own. It's doing the things that computers aren't going to be able to do. And so in, in a, in, as a journalist, as a reporter, I, I code, I use data, um, but I also know that there are going to be programs that are, that are doing that better and better on a regular basis. What I can do is still go places. I can still talk to people. Uh, I can still identify a story and see something and say that's something that's going to interest people. Um, I can do an investigation where I say this is something that really matters and is really going to affect people's lives. And I think that that's something that, that goes well beyond the journalistic sphere, that at a certain core level, and we need to figure out how to use technology, but we also need to figure out how to develop the skills uh, that, that are outside technology and, and that are not going to be taken over at some point. And I, I think that that's something to be thinking about a lot, even as you're considering considering sort of where you're going in your career, don't just think kind of what computers can do now, but think what are the skills that are going to be valuable permanently. And Noah, as someone who uh, does a lot of educational panels and seminars um, and has a position at Cambridge, is it right? Um, are you, how do you think we can keep up with the pace of change as we educate people today? So I think there are two levels of education that are currently taking place, and it's really important to acknowledge privilege in this conversation, which we've touched upon. And those of us in this, on this panel all graduated from elite institutions with uh, a very nice head start and a network of individuals who trusted us to take on roles uh, very early on in our careers. And so I think we've been given tools and networks and resources from the beginning to help us navigate this transition to a world that is very technology driven. Uh, where I see this changing now is that a lot of people who haven't had those opportunities are going straight for jobs as programmers. And I think that's a really great shortcut that in 12 weeks you can take a course at General Assembly and learn how to code, or you can um, go online to Coursera and, and really you know, find a way to disaggregate some of the information that you would have had to go to a university to learn several years ago, you can find now. Of course, the challenge is that you, A, have to have access to that technology in the first place. Um, and let's not pretend that even in the U.S. this isn't an issue. And then the second is you also have to know how to look for these resources and market yourself when you leave. And so there's a balance between both having the technical skills and the soft skills. And I think we really need to figure out how to position uh, both as opportunities for people across all aspects of the privileged spectrum. Sherman, when since you're in school, when I was in school, edX and Coursera, the Khan Academy, they didn't exist and distance education was kind of a, uh, an idea. Um, even though I think you made the point that you're at Columbia where there's terrific programming in person, were you ever pushed or interested in the distance education world? Is Columbia doubling down on that? And do you think that that was effective if you partook in those courses? Um, not for anything that's related to my major, which is financial engineering, but um, I got into fashion um, sophomore year and I started taking classes at FIT and Parsons and I absolutely loved it, yeah. And those were, those were distance classes? You were taking them online or were you there um, in person? Many of them were online and some were in person, yeah. Excellent, that's very uh, Yeah, that eventually affected my life decision, you know, how I made my career choices, yeah that lead me here, you know, right here at this panel speaking about my fashion technology. Terrific, during Fashion Week. Um, and uh, Alex, let me, let me switch to another question with you. So uh, I know in my own career that uh, as much as I wanted it to be a well-laid plan, um, that there was a lot that happened that was unintentional and uh, I had to be watching out for those opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about planning versus unintentional uh, opportunities in a career, yours and others? I like this question, as I told you backstage. Um, and, uh, you know, I am going to quote the father of uh, Apple here, Steve Jobs, uh, in his uh, Stanford commencement speech, which says it makes much more sense in hindsight than it does right at the beginning when you plan it. And I think, um, I think that's the case on all, your, all the careers that you have, or my my career so far and I'm sure many others it's also for me I never had a five-year plan um, and that's how you end up in consulting generally because you don't know what you want to do and therefore you go to consulting um, but that's that's actually turned out fine I think one of the anecdotes 
um, that is worth talking about is a lot of what I did at university. And, you know, I really followed various passions at university. Um, I studied biochemistry, but then I helped out in the May Ball, and then I ran the student charity. They all made sense now in my career, and they made totally no sense back in the day. Um, so one one example is I um, Cambridge has these May Balls, which are these big parties, essentially, where you have a band and you have lots of... Um, lots of alcohol and food and, and et cetera. Uh, I, saw, and, uh, I saw you yeah. thinking there, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> alcohol, sorry. Students under 21, never mind. Um, and so I was the drinks officer of the May Ball because I spoke French, and so I could order lots, large quantities of champagne in French. That, and I thought that was a cool thing to do age 19, right? It made no sense. Um, but it was, a, it was running a 2,000-person event uh, one whole night with like 80 staff like on the night, etc. It's like a highly organized event-based thing. Lo and behold, I never thought I would be the director of program of the Clinton Global Initiative, and now I am. These event management skills that I acquired age 19 and this passion I had for, you know, very planning something for a long time and then sort of on one night everything has to go perfectly is highly relevant. And that was never intentional to, that I would ever use what I learned buying champagne to, to this. So anyway... That's an and if the Global Citizens Dinner needs a champagne consultant, you're there. So. Oh, I definitely am. <laughs> ben, how about unintentional consequences in your career? Yeah, I think this is something that, that is actually really worrisome right now. Um, people complain a lot about job-hopping millennials, uh, but I actually wish that you would all job-hop a little bit more often. Uh, one of the things that we've seen in the economy in recent years has been that uh, because there haven't been very many opportunities, especially sort of a couple of years ago, people who were lucky enough to have a job didn't dare leave it. Uh, and that was a very rational decision in the moment. But what it meant was, I think if you talk to people up here, a lot of us move from job to job a little bit. We move from career to career a little bit. We develop different skills. That's important in terms of making more money. And it's important in terms of finding out kind of where uh, it sort of fits the best. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Noah mentioned sort of privilege here. And I think that it's important to acknowledge here again, the privilege that comes not only with sort of graduating from, you know, an elite institution, but I think graduating without a lot of student debt, graduating knowing that you have some manner of safety net. You know, I, I certainly didn't have anybody paying any of my bills, but I knew that if there was, if I had a medical emergency, if I did lose my job, that there was, I was gonna have a bed to sleep in at night, that I was gonna have somewhere to go. And that allowed me to take risks in my career that I think a lot of people don't have. And so I think that as we are in positions to start hiring people, to start thinking about sort of the shape of, of the corporate economy, it's important to figure out ways to allow people who don't come from sort of as fortunate backgrounds to be able to take the risks and make those leaps that are really important towards finding a career going forward. Noah, same question to you. Um, so that's a great plug for uh, many initiatives that are happening to get people in trying careers that are a bit more out of the box. Um, and so... <laughs> And there are initiatives out there, there are grants out there, and so if you're a student and you're interested in trying something but don't necessarily have uh, the ability to take on an unpaid internship, there are growing opportunities out there to enable you to do that. Um, so I definitely encourage you to do that. But in terms of my own career, much of it has been incredibly serendipitous and, and way beyond my wildest dreams. But also when I wanted to make the move into the social impact space from my time in the private sector, that was a very conscious decision. And that was one that I worked towards for about two years in order to really fully move to. So there are, of course, many ways that it connects going backwards. But if you really want to make a big change, you have to work for it. Sherman, um, we're leading up to the final question before we go to questions from the audience here, but if you could characterize how your graduating class feels about their job prospects, what is the feeling on campus right now? And, you know, I know you have your next steps, I think, figured out, which is great, but characterize for us a little bit what it's like to be a student right now looking at the prospects in the workforce. 
Um, I would say definitely many of them are very anxious. Uh, my friend, my best friend was actually just telling me how recruitment season is here and they're so freaking out about, you know, sending out a resume and uh, going through the, especially finance and CS job interviews and stuff. But um, also a lot of them are still interested in social impact and many of them are thinking about working for NGOs full time. And um, I think, um, yeah, it's been great and um, many many of them are still facing student loan and that's problems but um I think um, true they don't have much money to throw around and they don't have 10 hours per week for volunteer work because they have three part-time jobs but uh, many of them are um, writing articles for online publishers they are um, talking to professors in sociology psychology they're attending panels like this to promote social changes and they're doing what they can to um, do things that truly believing other than job hunting, obviously. Thank you, Sherman. So with that great context, for the three of you who are in a position to advise people leaving school, uh, and I know I, I do a fair amount of this as well, uh, I sometimes end up having a, a student sitting across from me who says, um, I don't know what I want to do. Help me think about how to think about what to do. And I'm curious, uh, reaching back into your experiences with this, how do you advise someone to think about their pathway if they have no idea what they want to do? I see Ben staring at me intently, so uh, w can we go to you first? Th that was me hiding and hoping you didn't come to me first. Uh, I, so I, mean, I, I think yeah. this, is, I think this is, a, is a challenge. Uh, I think I, I would offer sort of a couple general pieces of advice. Uh, one is, is not just to think about things in terms of the sort of established paths, right? You can, there's the consulting route that we've heard about. There's the, I have no idea what I'm going to do, so I'm going to go to law school or graduate school route. Um, certainly considered that at various points myself. Um, but I think that there's a lot of advantage towards getting out of the path, and, and that can mean um, taking a different career route. It can mean going somewhere else. I mean, I think getting out of New York, getting out of DC, getting out of Silicon Valley has a lot of advantages to it, not maybe if you're in a, a narrow set of careers, but I think in a lot of things. Um, and, and look for places where somebody is doing work that you find compelling. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the job that, that you get right out of the gate. It doesn't necessarily have to, to be the most compelling thing. In fact, it probably won't be. But if nobody at the place is doing anything interesting, the chances are you're not going to be the one person who's lucky enough to get to do it. And, and so looking for a place where you can find somebody and say, how do I get to be that person? Or how can I learn some of their skills? Uh, is is a really important thing, and then lastly, to, to be willing to make that to make that leap. And uh, if if something isn't making sense at first, not necessarily to to abandon it at the first sign, but also not to just sort of get locked into a certain path uh, when you still are are young and sort of have the flexibility to say, you know, heck, I'm going to pick up and, and move across the country or move overseas or or try something different. Wonderful, Noah. How about you? So I actually ended up in this position after dropping out of a pre-med program at Columbia two weeks in, uh, shortly after graduating from university thinking that I was going to become a doctor. So I <laughs> approached this from a moment of panic uh, at the age of 22 and really had to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And, and I looked back at my university degree and, and what I was really passionate about. And I ended up studying internet psychology and wrote my senior thesis on social networks. And so that's how I ended up starting one. So I, I saw a need, I looked back at what I was really interested in and I just went for it and I figured the worst thing that could possibly happen is that I would go back to the traditional route but I haven't looked back. <laughs> Wonderful. Alex, take us home with this one. Okay. Uh, so I dropped out of a PhD after three, three months, so I think that that shows that you can make mistakes and you know, recover from them without too much downside. Um, I think generally, I'll, I'll speak sort of specifically about social impact, but I think it probably applies to other industries as well. Um, I get a lot of people who come to me and say, oh, I want to work in social impact. It's like, okay, so what do you want to do? And I'll be like, mm, policy, 
And that's like really problematic, uh, partly because there's like one policy job maybe for every hundred in an NGO or social impact organization. And probably that expert has got a PhD in like early childhood education or something fairly specific. Um, so, you know, an, an organization like the Clinton Foundation or Save the Children or any NGO is going to have a whole bunch of finance people, a whole bunch of HR people, a whole bunch of grant managers, you know, lots of different project managers, IT people, etc. So I I ask people, and I'm sure it's the same in fashion, right? If somebody, I want to work in fashion, but do you want to be the fashion designer or do you want to work in PR, in communications, uh, in HR, in finance, etc., etc.? Um, and so narrowing down on the type, you know, I would approach it almost from a skills-based uh, basis as well. What are you good at? What do you enjoy? When you were doing teamwork projects at university, what role did you play? And you know, were you the detailed or your detailed oriented person who would edit the document at the end? Were you the sort of de facto team leader? I, lots of things, and think about what you enjoy and what you're good at, and then approach it by a skills basis. What are then the roles which are going to give you all the skills that as um, uh, as the other balance said, sort of lead you then to that other role, which is going to be a, um, the role you really want. Um, and so certainly that's what led me into consulting at that point was I didn't think that the entry-level jobs in NGOs at the time, which may have wanted to pay me really badly, were going to really give me that many skills. They were, and they were definitely they involved entering lots of things into databases and spreadsheets and I had no patience for that basically no, it's true so I had no patience for that and I was not very good at it so I didn't think I would be successful anyway in that thing so I thought about it from a skills perspective and that I think is helpful generally I, I really like that as the end of our curated discussion up here um, and I want to draw two quick uh, thoughts out of that the first is that the distinction between social impact jobs and jobs is erasing a little bit. And particularly if you look at it from that skills-based framework, I think um, we are seeing the ability to move between these sectors more seamlessly over time. Um, so I think that's a really great insight. And I think the, the other thing, and I think Noah, you alluded to this earlier, is the fact that if you look back in your own life as a student, there's usually the trail of breadcrumbs that can lead you to where you're going in the future. It may not be immediately visible, but if you walk someone through the things you like to do and what you have done, sometimes someone else can spot that thread. So with that in mind, let's turn it over to, uh, to the audience for questions. Alex, Sherman, Noah, Ben. My name is Peter Goldmark, and I'm a member of a generation that is leaving your generation with some very large problems. Thanks for you that. You all mentioned the impact of 2008, 2009. None of you mentioned that our country is more polarized and more paralyzed than probably since the run-up to the Civil War. You are yourselves, as you said in your own words, people who broke through. Some of you are privileged. None of you mentioned that in our country right now, some of the traditional ladders of opportunity for the vast majority of Americans are getting tougher to negotiate, not simpler. So the question I want to ask is, how is your generation, and we have left you some gems of problems, climate change, there will be more terrorism, and some of it will find its way to our shores. There will be cyber attacks in your lifetime, maybe in mine. How do you imagine your generation, at its best, and it has great strengths, will organize itself in all the different sectors that you now play in to face these problems. So one of the things I'm really focused on right now is how millennials are working with these established institutions to bring about social change. And I look at examples like the World Economic Forum's uh, Global Shapers community, like uh, corporations like Havas, which created One Young World, like the UN Foundations plus Social Good, and even like people who, Sheryl Sandberg, who created Lean In. And it's really about thinking about how your generation can work with our generation to make the biggest impact. I think when you look back at 2008 through 2011, the role of our generation was to protest, and that wasn't very effective. And now we're trying a different approach, and I think it is far more effective in getting people to collaborate and make big change happen, because I don't think it's going to be, you know, the problems you mentioned are very vast and very complex, and it's not up to one generation alone or one sector alone to solve them. 
You know, I, I will say one, one thing that worries me a little bit, um, and maybe I'm slightly less optimistic about this, uh, despite my earlier optimism about the economy, is that some of the, the structures that existed um, that could help to erode some of those barriers uh, have have themselves been eroded a little bit. So some of the you know large companies have, have never exactly been great powers for social change, but there were opportunities to sort of come up within them. You know, unionized jobs in many cases, uh, recruiting programs. If I look at journalism, um, it, it has always been a, a uh, decidedly uh, segregated place in a lot of ways. But there were programs out there to try to actively recruit people from other communities. As we've fractured a little bit, and as we have a lot in journalism, we have sort of so many things that are that are startups in the dot-com world, I think we've seen this in a lot, of, uh, a lot of industries, there's a lot of tapping people who are already in your networks, and a lot of reaching out, you know, saying, hey, we need somebody who can fill this role, you know, I'll, I'll post something on Facebook, I'll, I'll send something out to people that I know, and you end up finding people who have your experiences, who have your backgrounds, who look like you, and, and I think that that's a real challenge, and I think that figuring out how we break through that and very actively look for people with a range of different backgrounds, and, and that certainly includes race but includes socioeconomic status, it includes uh, geography and upbringing. I, I think that that's really critical and something that our generation has not to this date cracked. Um, I think we have a um, huger divide between the haves and have-nots when it comes to skilled labor right now. Um, and the people will be punished now more than ever um, for not studying something useful or um, practical in college. Um, the people who are in the industry that can be replaced by technology will face unemployment, um, will have a hard time making a living, or have to be more creative in the next 10, 5 years. But we're left with problems, which also means opportunities. In my parents' generations, they didn't ever have a choice. I was convinced before, before sophomore year that I was going to go get an engineering PhD and become a college professor because of family legacy. And then it took me less than a month to realize that this is the seemingly promising plan wasn't really working for me. And I started trying things out. And um, I ended up finding my true passion and doing what I really enjoy. Um, hello. So I'm going to take your question was excellent, by the way. And I, and I agree with what you said. And I'm going to take a broader stance on it. Um, so it's absolutely true that social mobility in the US is probably worse than it ever has been and the world more broadly is more unequal in terms of uh, uh, income um, that has you know that has very bad consequences for the economy overall and um, and uh, but what and this is a research from a Harvard professor Raj Shetty essentially that um, social mobility is really um, place-based there are areas in the U.S., like San Jose, California, where if you're born in the lowest 25% um, income percentile, you have a 25% chance of getting into the highest income quartile, roughly, which means there is social mobility still in those regions. Um, and then there's other places, I can't remember which ones, but let's say somewhere in the middle of America, where there is absolutely no chance or very little percentage chance that if you're born in the poorest income quartile, you're ever going to rise up to the top income quartile. And that's a problem. And that's due to a lot of factors. Um, it obviously race, socioeconomics impact it. But a large causal link is going to be the quality of the education. Um, but what that tells me is also that there's hope in the sense that place-based growth and place-based uh, interventions are... Uh, can work and there's examples of cities around the United States like Detroit being quite a good example Chattanooga Buffalo who've recovered from the crisis and come out uh, I wouldn't say better in many cases but have certainly come out on um, a very good path of sort of rebuilding towns that were even before the crisis probably sort of losing their urban center and losing their core industries etc today we have to figure out you know Coal country, Appalachia, there's really big problems in like how do they move to, how they're going to lose a lot of jobs from a shift to a low carbon economy. How, how can you redevelop those places? Well, hopefully by learning from San Jose, Buffalo, Chattanooga, Detroit and other places on how to do that. The problem is that in all of these places, the pace of change, technological change or industry change you lose a generation or you you lose at least 10 or 20 years in that sense and that's 
that's a problem which fortunately I don't have a solution to. I think that that's just how that's always happened. Um, but hopefully we can learn from places that are doing it well and how you bring it back. It, so. Peter, if I can just take one last crack at an excellent question. Um, the one thing that is not fungible in the world is time. And I think a lot of the problems that you mentioned were percolating for earlier generations, but the urgency is increasing. And I think the true question for the generation graduating now, which is what we're talking about, is a series of choices. The key choice of which is, can you take a long view that is more than just will you eat tomorrow? And thinking about two generations hence, what will the world look like? And even more so, I think, what barriers can be erased? And I will leave us on a little bit of a hopeful note, Peter, to say that I've read some great work that we can share after this uh, on Generation Z, engaging in some behaviors that give me hope that that choice is being made in a way that will help us solve some of these problems, whether it be purchasing patterns that prize uh, products that have a social impact that's more positive, caring about the supply chain behind those products in a way that prior generations measurably do not, even though they talk about it. Uh, I think we see people uh, to Ben's work, looking for real information. 538 is a great example of digging below the, uh, the headline into real data. And I think our generation, whether it be looking at Jon Stewart or others, is looking for real news and kind of sick of being uh, fed the 30-second spot. Um, and I think looking cross borders at more and more, I mean, Sherman, you're doing work in China and the U.S., uh, nations that have at times been at odds in some ways, uh, but this generation is looking exclusively at doing work together. So if we're looking for little clues about how this generation is going to handle these problems, these are some clues that leave me with hope, but it's not a done deal, and it's a very important question. Thank you. Um, I'm Bardo Ambert from uh, Erasmus University, Rotterdam. I come from the same generation as the previous um, person who asked the question. Um, in my generation, we, we looked up to the government and we were sort of polite and we obeyed what the government was doing. I think for, the, for this generation, if we look at the government, um, they've partly caused the problem. We are subsidizing the wrong type of foods. So we have then have an obesity problem, yet we try to solve healthcare without looking at those kind of issues. How does this generation look at the government? What do you expect from it? Is the government still as important as we thought it was in our generation? Or as you just um, discussed that, you know, government, why? We look, we're working across borders now. Um, so how do you look at, at the government? Do you, do you look for help? Do, do, do you want them to facilitate? Do you want to change it? Thank you. Anyone want to take a crack at that? I can try. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know enough about American politics, but I can definitely see a, quite a, a polarized, uh, polarized uh, view uh, at this point. I, I also think, you know, coming from Europe, the uh, both the certainly the countries I'm from, the UK and France, have uh, have sort of, I guess, disappointing politicians and and sort of career. The civil service career path is probably one which isn't preferred um, among among uh, certainly my generation, um, and that's a problem. That's a real problem. First, because um, government still plays a huge role, whether people like it or not, and you know, large parts of your salary still goes to taxes, and those taxes still go to doing a huge number of things, um, and it's. Uh, you know, government is there for me um, to allocate resources that need to be, uh, I'm going to say redistributed, which is not a very good word for the US, um, but need to be uh, best allocated. We know that capital markets fail and that they don't, uh, they create inequalities that, and those inequalities need to be redressed. They can either be redressed by NGOs, but really they should be redressed by, by the governments and how that system works to create opportunity for all. And that's really, you know, really investing in education so that social mobility, as we were talking about, exists is definitely should be the primary role of the government. Um, the space where non-profits and civil society comes in is going to be really to complement or unfortunately remediate that when there is an absence of that. Um, I'd like, you know, I heard something that when President Obama was elected, 
there was a, an uptick in the sort of in people wanting to apply for government roles. That's good. Like, how do we make government sexy again, and how do we make it effective again? Is the question that I think is is hugely important. And I don't know if somebody has the answer on this panel, but I'd love to see that. But I say, I mean, I'm not sure that the generation that protested the Vietnam War and then elected Ronald Reagan um, loved, uh, maybe not all the same people on those two things, but was necessarily a huge fan of government. Um, I, you know, I, I think that there is, if we look in, in this country now, both the, the election of, of uh, President Obama by a strong youth vote and then in this city, the election of, uh, of Mayor de Blasio suggests that there is a, a sense that there is a role for government. I think that there is an expectation among many young people that government will work in a way that maybe it historically hasn't, that it, that it will be more efficient, that it will be more user-friendly at a, at a local level even, that the DMV will, there, there's frustration that it's, uh, there's always frustration, but there's an expectation that the DMV will work for you a little bit better. And at the higher level, there's an expectation uh, of a greater degree of efficiency, sort of less acceptance of the, this sort of inefficiency that, that we associate with government. Um, but I, I think that there is still a belief in the power of government to do some things that the the private sector can't do or, or won't do. And so then the challenge is how do you make sure that it, it actually manages to do that in, in an efficient and effective way? So there are many studies that show that trust in government is lower than it ever has been. And, and as my panelists alluded to, that's a problem because government can solve problems and address different issues that other sectors can't. Interestingly, people have more faith in business and as a potential solver of social problems, which is a very positive pressure, you know, puts a very positive pressure on businesses. But by taking the pressure off of the government and by not forcing it to adapt and to change the way other sectors have, I think government is, is facing a really big crisis. And as we see in Europe and other places, um, there's going to really be a big shift that requires government to adapt to a different generation that works at a different pace and has different expectations than previous generations did. Um, I was actually born and raised in China, so I don't know that much about American politics. And the last student protest at uh, Columbia was decades ago, which means, you know, crazy parade and breaking stuff at the campus and stuff. But I can speak from my personal experience. Um, my NGO, Global Youth Mentorship Initiative, relies a lot on Chinese government from finding schools to work with and make sure volunteers is safe and make sure our online technology works well. But with that said, I think um, like instead of with the private sectors thrive right now, people actually rely on um, government less because there are things that NGOs can do that government don't really care. I wanna thank you for that question and, and actually leave us with one other thought on, on this. As people look to leave college, what they're hearing about public office is that if you run for public office, your life will be exposed and you will be torn apart by the press and by your peers and by other candidates and that it doesn't pay well and it doesn't work and why would you wanna do it? And I would say incumbent on everyone here and everyone who sees this podcast, we need to make sure that for those people who see themselves leading in the public sector, that they have faith that that is a worthy thing to do and that they have faith that they can make a difference because we're not gonna solve climate change just with social business. If carbon is not priced by governments around the world, we will not fix that problem. So while there's a lot we can do in the private sector, in the social sector, and in nonprofits, there is a need for great leaders in the public sector, and we need those people to run for office, and we need to let them know while they're in college that that's a future that they can aspire to. And I think we can leave that there. Thank you so much for being a terrific audience. Please join me in thanking our panelists and in thanking our wonderful hosts here at the Apple Store. We hope you have a great night. Take care. <laughs>